The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. If anyone has footage of a president with Russian prostitutes, which agency would probably have that? That would probably be the FBI. Welcome back another week, another week from the bunker. Yeah, this is, listen, this is longer than I thought. You never know, right? We were hearing rumblings about this and then, I don't know, then suddenly we're holed up, holed up and I don't want to go into this shit. Listen to other podcasts for that. Listen, the one thing that has emerged from this, which is interesting to me, and I probably should have saved this for the, for the Jim Cornette episode of this show which is no doubt forthcoming, as he keeps telling me. Well, I got a whole bunch of fucking orders. I just got to get out and, you know, got the shows driving me fucking crazy. And uh, why don't you give me a call next week? And mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a new emergence of the identity of the New Yorker. Out of this, out of the COVID thing, out of the the shutdown and the more the media coverage, right? So, what are people? Where are people turning? Intelligent people turning for their for their information. The the Cuomo, the uh, Andrew Cuomo news uh, conference every day is uh, is always a good uh, always a good source. Um, for the medical aspect of things in the White House, I think. To universally agree that Anthony Fauci has his uh, doctor, Anthony Fauci, excuse me, he worked for it, um, has his head on more straight than anybody else you could be listening to there. So, um, so I think out of this, there's gonna, there's going to come a new identity of the New Yorker, right? Now we do the now we do the, hey, yo, hey, yo, you know, uh, I'm walking here, taxi, get the fuck out of here. You know, that's that's the caricature that we've drawn. But I think out of the Fauci's and the Cuomo's, there's a new, there's a new New Yorker, right? The, 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 if they were any more polished, this wouldn't work. But when Fauci talks, when Fauci talks, he's got the New York thing a little bit too. So that's that's there. And then there's a touch of it in Cuomo. But they're they're seasoned, they're 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 highly competent, which has to count for something in this world today. You may not remember when competent people were making the big decisions, but there was a time. There was a time. And uh, we'll go back to it uh, eventually. But the competent New Yorker, it was always a punchline, right? You, look at something New York-based, like Taxi is the first thing that just came to mind, all right? The characters that were the diehard New Yorkers in there, right? The, the Tony Danza character of... Uh, 
of uh, oh, what the hell was his name on the show? It was Tony, Tony Banta, right? That was a little bit like this, and then then there was the the um, Louis, right? So it falls into caricature, and I think unfortunately, it has always gone hand in hand with ignorance. It just it sounds ignorant now. New Yorkers are savvy and street smart, right? I'm talking I'm I'm talking about the caricature. I'm talking about the stereotype when I say this, right? Well, I know there's all different kinds of New Yorkers, obviously. But um it was it was for so long like goon town, right? It was it that that New York thing usually didn't uh, suggest that you were, you know, playing with the fullest deck. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? So, but now that I think we'll emerge with a new New York. All right. So get ready, Corny. It's coming. There's a new New York. And it's smarter. The accent is tamped down just a little bit. Not too much, just a little bit. It's got to be there. You got to know. You got to know where they're from when they walk in the room and say hi to you. You have to know. That wouldn't be New York if you didn't. So I'm hoping we could push it to happen. Even like, I think Alec Baldwin, right? Like he's got that kind of thing. The smart New Yorker. Woody Allen's a New Yorker and he's smart, but that's a whole other, he's not the caricature. He's too far from the caricature, I should say. It's not even, it it doesn't even resemble. So, um, like the, the, you know, the the, the nebbishing, you know, New Yorker, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the ones uh, that are alpha in their performance, Right. Um, listen, there's a new New Yorker coming. Get ready, Corny. Corny, you're going to have to revise a little. But listen, I'm listen, I'm sure there's a new Louisville too. What does that sound like? Hey guys, what are you reading right now? You got some free time. What are you reading? Head to seanoliverbooks.com, a one-stop shop for my writings. We have novels available there, my three thrillers. And my three wrestling-related books, um, all available at seanoliverbooks.com. Three novels transfer, my most recent one, which reads the discovery, said was an exceptionally thrilling story that builds up with a solid pace and keeps the reader immersed and emotionally invested. The Consultant. Reads the Discovery also saying, if you are a patient reader and love mysteries, this is the book for you. A beautiful, unsolvable mystery, unputdownable. First, my first novel, Sophie's Journal. Um, also, the wrestling books are there. Kayfabe stories you're not supposed to hear from pro wrestling production company owner. The business of Kayfabe taking you inside the company I ran, uh, co-ran for ten plus years. And Father's Blood: True Stories of Pro Wrestling Dads Facing Their Greatest Challenger, Parenthood. That's the book Sports Illustrated. It said Sean has the unique ability to share the journeys of those who have sacrificed so much for pro wrestling, and he does so in a manner that evokes compassion, humor, and joy. SeanOliverBooks.com 
All right, I'm sitting here uh, with, uh, digitally sitting here with a pioneer uh, in so many ways. As someone that I, I instantly felt a, the more I researched this person, the more I felt a kinship with them. Um, in my personal credo, which is uh, you don't have to be one thing. And um, my guest broke barriers, and uh, and she's not one thing. She's so many things. She's Jerry Williams. She's a former FBI agent uh, who hosts a great podcast um, of other retired FBI agents uh, coming on, talking about their cases. She's written great books, works of fiction and nonfiction. We're going to talk about the nonfiction book today, which is called Myths and Misconceptions. Uh, of which you have many, I promise you out there, you, you think that you're a pretty savvy reader and watcher of Netflix, I guarantee you we're going to trip you up here with some of what we're going to talk about. She's an indie publisher, which anyone who doesn't know about indie publishing, it means you are your own business, you're your own publishing house, you're buying keywords, you're advertising, you're doing layouts, you're hiring editors, firing editors, and paying for it all in the hopes that your book makes a return and finds some eyeballs. Did I miss anything, Jerry? Oh, no, you got it all there. You got okay. it all there. All right. <laughs> you know, I said pioneer, and I'm not joking. Um, uh, when Miss Williams came on uh, to the FBI, what percentage of the uh, FBI would you say were A, female, B, people of color, any color, or C, females of color? Okay. Well, I can tell you, first of all, the number of females in the FBI at the time was around anywhere between 10 and 15% of the agents. The number of black female agents was about 0.5, a half a percent. Yeah. I was actually the 23rd black female hired by the FBI. Uh, you know, when I came in, it was 1982. Women had been in the FBI since 1972, but over that 10-year period, it only had been a couple of hundred. I mean, there still wasn't a lot of women in the FBI considering the fact that we have 56 field offices. So there was still only, you know, two or three here and there. What's the total uh, uh, size of that roster of people on the FBI payroll? Agents. Yeah, it's about thirteen to 14,000 Oh, so that's a big number. Okay, that's a big number. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. You and know, so you even now, mm -hmm. yeah, even now there's about a little over 20% of the agent population are females. St okay, right. Still only 20. So that's one of the, we're going to touch on that. There's a chapter on the, uh, the makeup, the physical uh, makeup of the force. Uh, you work mostly uh, financial and corporate crime, right? And uh, is there... Is there less of a satisfaction slamming the cuffs on Murray the banker than on John Wayne Gacy? Like at the end of the six months, is there less of a hoorah when it's... Uh, not for me. No? Okay. And, and let, me, let me give you an example, a nice little story I like to tell. Okay, so if you were walking down the street on any normal day, and I walked up to you and put a gun to your head and told you to give me everything all the money that you had in your pocket, how much would I get on a normal day? Cash, nothing. Cash. Credit cards, uh, you know, you could go run, run up a bill, but cash, not much. Okay. Now, what if I came into your home and told you about a fantastic opportunity that I had for you, for you to invest your money, your life savings, 
And I just told you about the interest that you were going to make. And I was going to double your, oh, all your kids were going to have money. Your parents would be set. You could go out and buy a yacht. And I was able to get you to sign away all the money that you had in investments and in the bank. Would I get a little bit more? Yeah, I see where a you're whole going lot more. there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, yeah, for me, investigating economic crime was so satisfying. And I wasn't doing financial institution fraud. Yeah, that might be a little boring. Yeah, that's <laughs> where I, I went was, with it. That, I, I was yeah. thinking like some guy pilfering the bank. No, I was going after the con men, you know, the advance fee schemes, the telemarketing fraud, the Ponzi schemes. I was going after those people who always thought they were the smartest people in the room. And so when I walked in, <laughs> you know, who is she? Oh, no, it was I loved it. And no, it was extremely satisfying. Were people put off by or they thought they could take advantage of you have kind of a motherly it comes across on your podcast too, yeah, kind yeah. of a caring motherly thing, which actually probably worked to your advantage to get people to talk. Yes, it did. You know, that was definitely also, you know, I came into the FBI young at 25, but by, you know, 30, you know, I was having my kids. I had three kids and yeah, I, I really kind of developed that. That's just my personality anyway. I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty empathetic. I'm, I'm pretty understanding. I'm not, I try not to be judgmental. And so, yeah, I could go into a situation like that and I, I might think this person is the scum of the earth, you know, in, in, in my mind. And I said somewhat judgmental. Remember I said somewhat. <laughs> But in the back of my mind, but there is, I had no reason to express that or show that or make them feel less than. And I think that was definitely an advantage. Yeah. Um, your book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, um, you, the impetus to write a book about it. I'm sure you guys would talk about it uh, at the office and, you know, like, did you see that show last night kind of thing? But to write a book for us, did that come from a particular frustration over shit you were seeing on TV? Or was it just uh, an opportunity to educate authors because you're an author yourself? It came from really, I mean, I never thought of, it as a book because I considered myself a crime writer. But in so many of the interviews that I've done with other retired agents, in talking about a particular case, I would say to myself, or we would say to each other, yeah, that's not like how it is on TV. And we said that so many times that I started kind of jotting it down. And soon I found out that I had at least 20 you know, major myths and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV and movies. And so I thought, you know what, this is a book and this is a book. And I, I, I'm really proud of the concept that I had, you know, for the book where I am integrating uh, facts about the FBI from the FBI website and from my career with the uh, quotes and snippets of the audio from my podcast, you know, transcriptions of those, and then pulling in some of the movies. And I've been fortunate enough to interview so many agents who've had their careers made into TV shows and movies. And so, it, you know, it was a good concept for the book. I'm, I'm really proud of it. 
You should be. Um, I'm actually in the middle of writing something for the first time now. Based, well, not for the first time. Uh, first time in recent years based on something that actually happened. And there's a lot of agency involvement. All the three letters, uh, DEA, CIA, and FBI. And um, this little avatar of Jerry lives in my head as I'm writing <laughs> because, you know, there, there is that need and not just a tendency, a need to be a little filmic with what we're talking about here. Some of this stuff, even though, you're, you know, I'm dealing with espionage at an international level, it's dry sometimes. So you do have to kick it up a little bit. But Jerry has a scale in her book. It's, it's so great. Um, whether she's going to throw a, t- a shoe through the TV set, uh, maybe just unlock lace some of the laces on the shoe or keep it firmly on foot based on how egregious the violation is in what she's watching. And I want to bring up a few of these, just four or five. You guys will have to go get the book to get the other 15 FBI myths and misconceptions available at Amazon and all places books are sold. Um, But I want to bring up my... Because I'm guilty. I, I Look, I consider myself a little bit above the curve in all things arts, but I was guilty of several of these misconceptions that were uncovered in your book. And um, okay. I sense that that um, that the general public was too. So the first was that, um, and this is probably the most common, the FBI is always seen as an intrusion on the local investigation, which is going swimmingly. And you know what? I've got a brand new example of that. And I love the TV show Bosch mm. that's streaming on on, a, on Amazon Prime. I've always I've always read Michael Connelly's books, and you know once the TV show or you know the streaming series started coming, I started watching that. And this season has a storyline with the FBI, and one of the very first scenes is this confrontational you stay in your lane and fbi don't tell me what to do kind of scene and you know as soon as i i watched it i said oh i gotta write another blog post about this and 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 smack the writer's hands because it's so cliche it's so tired and it's so untrue i mean we've got some people in the fbi some personal agents in the FBI. Oh, wait a minute. Can I, can I use, can I curse on your, on your Yeah, show? you can curse. Uh, this I'm, is a I'm little one. Very lowbrow here, but yeah, go ahead. No, this is very little one. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll, that, that are asses. That can be asses. That's, How's that? Yeah, that's, that, yeah. that's, that's practically yeah. church speak these days. Good. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Well, well you know, of course they're individual people. I mean, I dealt with them in the FBI, you know, that, that there's some individuals that you're like, but, Usually those people are excellent agents, you know, they just don't take a lot of extra stuff, you know. Um, But other than that, the FBI on a whole has, I'm not just saying this, it it has a very collaborative relationship with local, state, and other federal agencies. And this, of course, after 9-11, that even increased, but it just is the way of policing today. The task force concept, the the sharing of information, the working uh, together, uh, and this cliche of the FBI not playing well with others is so, so tired, so, so untrue. It just angers me whenever I see it. But why does it happen? Where was the, Was there ever a time where this was pervasive and it was written about so much that it's a trope that just kind of found a thoroughfare to today? Or is it just an easy grab for the writer? It probably was true at one time. I mean, when you think of uh, our former director, J. Edgar Hoover, and his personality, I mean, he really felt that the FBI 
course, I feel that way, too, is the best law enforcement agency in the world. And I think he really wanted to beat that into people and and really came in, you know, trying to push everybody out of the way. The FBI is smarter and better and all of that stuff. But the reality is that the FBI has no jurisdiction over the uh, other police departments. They're not subordinate to the FBI. We have our own Everybody has their own jurisdiction, and sometimes, you know, those jurisdictions overlap. So I do think it probably started out with the image that J. Edgar Hoover wanted to portray, but in the actual street, you know, in the field with agents working with their local counterparts, it could not happen. We need the local, the locals and the state you know, troopers and all of those people to work our investigations. But now uh, Hoover was ruthless. I mean, you tell a story in your book about uh, an agent that was fired for, was he having not shaven in an elevator? He saw him in an elevator. What was it? He had acne. Oh, he had acne. See, it was even worse. (laughs) Oh, you know, how could he? He was rumpled and had acne and, you know, he didn't look like an FBI agent. He wasn't representing the brand. Um, Yeah, and I, you know, the, the story is he got fired. You know, and I think I put it in the book too. another story about an agent who was up for a promotion and a raise and he had sent in a report and he had some typos. And so he was denied his uh, his promotion because of the typos. Well, I could almost see if I had to pick one, I could I could take that as opposed to a guy who had no control over his skin condition. It's brutal. Listen, let's go to the second one that that I'm guilty of. I'm going to combine a couple uh, for this one. I I did probably have the mental image of the FBI agent as the stogy, stuffy, undersexed, frustrated white dude. Now, I'm sure some of them are. I'm sure some of them are. But what percentage? There might have been a few, but I think it's a very small percentage. I mean, the guys I worked with, and they were mostly guys, you know, throughout my career, um, were just a blast, you know, fun. And they joked a lot and they played practical, you know, jokes on people. And they, you know, they had families that they loved and talked about their kids. And they, you know, really cared about the victims and the witnesses and the subjects, you know, and, you know, they were caring and empathetic and emotional and real. And, you know, that whole thing about the FBI, you know, agents being unemotional and, you know, and and having, you know, no concept of, uh, you know, others is just so false. I mean, these people gave so much, so much sacrifices, uh, I'll include my myself in there, you know, to get the job done. Yeah. Give me give me some of that FBI humor. Tell me a practical joke that might have gone on in the office that you were witness to. Is it like taking the screws out of the chair type stuff? Is it hiding somebody's like cocaine evidence? What's an FBI practical joke? I think a lot of it had to do with if you made a mistake, if you did something stupid and you thought that you might be able to get away with it, there was no way. And this, I know people are not going to like this one because it has to do with animals. Well, that's uh, the one to tell, the one people won't like. Come on. (laughs) But uh, one of the agents on my squad, his name is Dan. I won't use his last name. But um, coming back from uh, a meeting or something, he hit and killed a dog. 
And he was devastated, which I would be too. I have two dogs and, and I know I, I heard your dogs. So yeah. Um, thanks. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, you know, it was just, it was hard for him. And I remember him calling and if you have any type of accident with a bureau car, you know, someone's going to meet you. They got to take a report and, and all of that stuff. And so, you know, so that's why everybody knew about it. Cause he had to call in, you know, to get someone to come out there and take the pictures and take the report and all this stuff. Um, by the time he got back to the office, one of the agents on my squad who was an excellent artist had, this is terrible, but had drawn a dead dog with the tongue hanging out and the eyes all rolling back in their head, beautiful drawing and on cardboard and had cut it out and it was hanging on a string right above his, right above his desk. So here's this guy thinking he's going to come back to the office for, with all of us saying, oh, poor you. Are you OK? What a terrible thing. And instead is a, a photo of a, you know, a, a drawing, a beautifully done drawing of this dead dog swinging um, over his desk. God, I hope he was and a good we, sport. Oh, you have to be because yeah. we would re, we would not allow him to take that down. It was like, oh, no, don't you dare take that down. That has to stay up there until the next person does something stupid. Oh. And it did. And, and what, what was the next picture? Like Ted Bundy hanging? <laughs> what was the next case that <laughs> usurped the dead dog? I'm not. I don't remember what okay. it was, but I'm sure somebody did something. You know, somebody did something. All right. My next uh, misconception that I'm guilty of is I think if I had, I didn't realize it until you wrote it, but I think if I had to write this, the scene, where they're going to look something up, there is going to be one centralized database wherein I type, you know, Vito Fangul, and I, I, I get his his rap sheet like right next to what he, how he takes his coffee and where he shops. That there's one place in the FBI where everything on everybody is stored. And that is so untrue. I wish it was true. I mean, my goodness, how great and how easy your investigations would be if you could go to a central database and just type in the information and you spit back all of this stuff. But the truth is, you know, there is NCIC, which is the National Crime uh-oh, Information Center, uh, where you store in like the criminal history and arrest and uh, you know, of, of different people and, you know, the stolen cars and, you know, stolen property, all that kind of stuff is inputted by law enforcement agencies around the country, you know. So you have that, but when it comes to trying to learn something about somebody's military status or their medical status or their financial status or their educational status, all of these databases are maintained and, and the storage is someplace else. And so there, it's just impossible to be able to go in and collect all of this information. It can take an agent or an analyst probably, I would say, weeks, if not months, to gather the type of information that an analyst on TV, right. you know, like a criminal minds can sit down and, oh, wait a minute, I, from... And sometimes they don't even know the person's name. From facial recognition, I've been able to uh, end up f figure out that this is so-and-so. And by going into the computer base, I see here that uh, 20 years ago, he was the cellmate of the, uh, of the subject of this investigation. So that ties those two together. I believe that they're working on a gang, and this gang operates. And I'm thinking, like, this is like a true tale I'm talking about. And you're looking at it saying, what? Yeah. What? 
it's, it's so you're literally going to um, if you want to look up someone's college records, you're going to have to know where they went and you're going to go and look up the transcripts separately. And then the driver's license, uh, the oh, DMV. Wait, wait. Uh-huh. What about the subpoena? Are that you need to get that information? Oh, so each. You know? Oh, I see. So okay. So oh, if yeah. you have a suspect, a, a judge might only say um, you can look at X, Y, Z, but you can't look at ABC. You can't look at school records. You can't. Right. It's not a blanket. You can look through the person's entire life. Right. You in most cases, the type of inf- information that we're talking about, you can look at it, but you have to. Uh, to get a subpoena, you have to indicate to the court why you're doing it. What is the purpose of you seeking that information? And then at the, you know, the subpoena, usually the subpoena is drawn up and, and approved through the U.S. Attorney's Office. Then you could get it. But there's a record of the fact that you wanted to look at this information and why you wanted to look at it and what it's connected to. And then there is, uh, there are some some information you actually need a search warrant in order to obtain the information. So a, a lot of the stuff that they can easily get from, um, you know, on, on TV that they easily get from a computer database, you know, it, it requires a subpoena for, uh, you know, any law enforcement agency to obtain. And yeah. that's missed. And I think, I think things like that cause people to, to be uncomfortable with the reach of law enforcement to think that Big Brother is looking at them. And if they really knew the truth, they would might feel a little bit more comfortable about the information that we seek and how we seek it. Um, this one you're going to have to help me with here. You say, and this is a quote, bomb tech is, is a dangerous job is a misconception. That is correct. And to tell you the truth, that was one when I learned about that, I was actually surprised too because that was my impression because of movies like Hurt Locker you know where you see this guy walking in with the suit going to you know to uh, disarm a bomb but the reality is that nowadays in most police and law enforcement agencies and military a lot of that is done remotely so the actual hands-on manual manipulation of wires and bombs and stuff they don't really do that anymore it's all a remote robot that goes in and takes a look and maybe detonates the device or sees, or sees of its, you know, you can detonate it through a water source, you know, by um, blasting it with a water source. Uh, it's very, very seldom anymore that the bomb tech is actually going in and doing that themselves. The, 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 the main job of the bomb tech, I learned, is post-blast. Their job is to be able to go in after a bomb has gone off and help detect the source of the bomb, the, you know, gather the components of the bomb, uh, testify about the post-blast crime scene and what was there, what was found. Uh, they also work very closely with, uh, again, local and state and other federal law enforcement agencies when there is a... Uh, a report of a suspicious package. But again, once everybody gets there, even your local police, that stuff is usually done remotely. And so the way they set it up on TV, and and again, I just cringe when I see this. On the, on the new FBI CBS show, 
um, I remember the first season at the at one of the episodes, they had a bomb tech come in and she dismantled a bomb with her hands by twisting and cutting wires. And I thought to myself, no, nobody would do that. They don't do that. You didn't even clear the area. All the people are still there watching you as you, you know, twist the green and cut the red wire. And so I wrote a blog post. That's what I do about it. And then when the second season rolled around, either the first or second episode, they did it again. And this time it wasn't the bomb tech. It was just one of the main agent characters who went in and cut the red and green wire. And that's when I threw up my hand and said, I give up. I'm not watching this show anymore. Wow. How silly, though. Like The show was so great. What was great about it, if, if that's how ridiculous they were portraying the job? Well, they were portraying parts of the job, you know, some of these things that I'm talking about here. But the show itself was exciting, and they presented the FBI in such a positive and heroic way. And the agents on the show are uh, empathetic and show real emotion and concern for each other and the general public. And they work hard and they're dedicated. So that part of of the FBI CBS TV show is fantastic. And so many of the, you know, TV shows and movies about the FBI, but they're just these things that keep being presented as truth Mm. that I just felt the need to go in and say, no. And some of it I say, no, but I understand why they did it because, you know, you're a writer yourself. And even for nonfiction, we know that a book has got to be entertaining. You know, there's got to be a story. You've got to have ups and downs. And so the writers who are writing these things that are, you know, cliches mm-hmm. are just trying to make an interesting story by introducing a climb, you know, a climax or introducing a conflict. But I just hope that they find new and innovative ways and not stick to these falsehoods. Because the reality is that most people, what they know about the FBI comes from the books they read, the TV shows they watch, and the movies you know that, that they go to. Let me just say uh, to CBS right now, uh, Ms. Williams is available as a uh, full-time consultant on the show. 10% is all I ask, Jerry. Uh, for having brokered that, but uh, she is available. I want to go to some that I have. These are my misconceptions that you did not, young lady, address in the book. And you, oh, but maybe oh, oh, I'm. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! I got to get my pen and pencil because it looks like volume two <laughs> is uh, about to uh, begin. Go ahead. Okay. Now you could either throw a shoe or tell me I'm 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 on point here. Okay. Uh, the first one is uh, FBI agents must meet at the diner with their informants all the time. This, this seems that it's always happening over food. I was aware of this, and in the uh, true story that I'm writing, I mean, it's a fictionalized version of the true story, I had to have him meet with an agent many times, so it was always like I, had, I wanted to come up with places that were outside, A, outside of the realm that we were used to, but also there's an ethnic thing in it too, so I, in the story. So I said, you know what? They're watching a high school football practice. They're in a goddamn parking lot watching a high school football practice, no one else around in the parking lot in the middle of the day. Halfway through writing the scene, Jerry, almost as if possessed by something, they whipped out hoagie sandwiches. They started eating. That Why are they always eating? Well, <laughs> I can tell you the oddest truth about that is because if you're meeting with an informant 
and you have to give that informative meal, then you might be able to also what they call blue slip or write off your meal too. So what agent would what wouldn't want to get a free lunch out of the deal? That's <laughs> a know, very you, practical you, answer. I know. If you've got a you know, especially working economic crime, if I need to meet, you know, one of my um you know, informants who just happens to work as, you know, a manager in this, you know, this, this, you know, fraudulent uh, uh, Ponzi scheme or, or fraudulent firm, you know, and, and I need to meet with him at dinner. I can't take him to McDonald's. You know, we got to go downtown Philly and, you know, eat some somewhere nice, you know, and then I, you know, I can't, I'm not supposed to pay for that. I'm supposed to blue slip that. And, and, and since I had to go for work, then I get to put my mail on there too. So there's a, there's a hook, <laughs> there's a hook, the FBI agent in, in, uh, in financial crime that has gone into it entirely to pilfer the system from blue for blue slip dinners. I had to buy that yacht. Where was I going to host the meeting? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you can jot that one down. Feel free to use it. Here's another one. Uh, the FBI can only get involved in an investigation if the crime or criminal has crossed state lines. And many, well, no. I mean, there are many jurisdictions or many violations that are just assigned to the FBI. So, you know, if you're looking at a financial fraud or organized crime, what the the guideline as to whether or not the FBI can work it is whether or not it affects commerce. Okay. So Irrespe if, irrespective of where the crime is. That is correct. So if you have a drug deal and the drugs are being sold in Philly, well, you know those drugs weren't made in Philly. You know, they were made overseas or in California. Bingo, we're in it because it affects commerce. You know, any type of stolen uh, property, most of the time that property has been, you know, manufactured and shipped in from someplace else. Bingo, it affects commerce. And so, again, there is a, a state line um, aspect to that, but that is not entirely the, the way to, okay. Right. The way to explain it is that it affects commerce. Now, when it comes to violent crime, like, you know, a kidnapping, you know, or a murder, uh, you know, the, the, that jurisdictional uh, of crossing the state line is a little bit more prevalent. But even so, especially when it comes to children, there does not have to be an interstate aspect to it. The FBI can get involved in a kidnapping or a potential uh, a violent crime that uh, that involves a child under 12 immediately. They don't have to wait until you know there is a jurisdiction. You know uh, something has crossed a, a state line. Now the reality is, and so many people don't know this, that after working all of this time on a case, uh, and and the body is recovered or the child was recovered live in their own state. Well, the FBI is not going to, that's not going to be most likely prosecuted federally. It will be prosecuted in state court. Now, the FBI may be asked to be a part of the prosecutorial team and, and testify at trial and do everything that they would have done federally 
for the state prosecutor. That happens all the time. But uh, we are very much involved in cases that at the end work better to be prosecuted by the state than uh, by the uh, by by the under the federal system an assistant the uh um what was it uh what would the federal be the uh assistant US, united, no, the, yeah the united states attorney the u.s attorney's office yeah right mm-hmm. uh, all right here's another one um an undercover agent mm-hmm. um may not participate in a crime while working i'm uh like for example if you're standing around you know if you're donnie brasco and someone says uh, listen why don't you shoot him this time what do you do <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one. That's a very hard one. There are there are some levels of crime that an undercover agent anticipating that they may be put into a particular situation can be clear to participate in. And that's the same for an informant who technically is working also for the FBI. There may be some crimes, you know, like a theft or something like that. But actually, you know, taking drugs or, you know, doing violent crime, harming somebody, killing somebody. Yeah, you're, you're in a hard spot uh, when that type of situation occurs. And one of my best episodes, I have to tell you this, is... Um, uh, a Philly, it was a Philly story. I love to do Philly stories, of course, because I, I know so many of them. But it was a shootout on Broad Street. And it actually occurred because the informant who had been working with the FBI for a number of years called to say that he is in a car or, or he was getting ready to get into a car to go kill somebody with some other guys and that there was no way that they could get he could get out of it. And so the agents who got his message, who, who heard from him, I think he went to the bathroom and called and said, look, I don't have a choice. I got to get in this car, but we're going out to we're going out to this place and we're going to go kill this guy. The agents rushed to that location and, uh, you know, they tried to, to stop the car and there was a shootout. But that occurred because they were trying to stop the informant from having to participate in a murder. And also, I mean, the reality was to stop the murder. The FBI cannot right. know about a murder and not try to Sad. do whatever they can to prevent it. <laughs> Let it go. Let it, he won't finish his scungeal yeah. tonight. But it would seem to me, if I were a kingpin, you know, they always there's always those scenes that we see, like when the new guy comes around, oh, you think he's a cop? Well, put a gun in his hand. Say, tonight you're shooting him. I mean, that's the ultimate test. Or you you, yeah, you, I, you snort that line first. Yeah, I guess it would be. And that's why working undercover is, is one of the last resorts. I mean, the guys that work undercover in those type of cases, I mean, it is one of the things that the FBI really has to you know, consider, are we going to put one of our guys in this situation and look at all of the what ifs? And sometimes it's better to have somebody who is already known, who is already involved in that organization, in that gang, in, in, in that, um, you know, whatever it is, to, to become an informant because they've already been tested they're already they're already 
uh, trusted. Um, the 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 in between that the, the you know that the best case scenario is that you get an informant, someone that's already trusted, that introduces the agent into that criminal enterprise, and that people feel comfortable enough that because this guy vouched for him, that he doesn't have to go through those initiation steps. Right. Um, uh, you know when the when when we were first clued into what criminal profiling was specifically like the BSU, right? The behavioral science unit. I think it's called something else today. BAU. Okay. But when that first came, came, it was first written about the first book I saw, I don't, if there's competition among the agents, I don't, and this is going to be my question. Mark Douglas's book was the first I saw. Maybe Hazelwood was before him or something, but I got the, I devoured everything that came out about that because I, yeah, I, got, th- I got it. I got it right there. It's John Douglas, not Mark. But oh, John, what did I say? Mark yeah. Douglas, uh, Mark Allshocker yeah. was Mark Allshocker's his right, co- exactly. co-author, yeah, John Douglas. Yeah. Um, so just the concept of, and it seems like Eureka to say, you want to know the artist, you look at the work. And so they could put such complex and many times very accurate profiles of who might be committing these crimes, these murders, um, before the term serial killer was even coined, probably. So I met Robert Ressler, another pioneer, um, Absolutely. Uh, and a writer, uh, Whoever Fights Monsters, I think was his book. Um, I think he passed away, too, didn't he? Yeah, I, yes, okay. he did. Yes, he did. So, um, but great books also. And uh, I got to meet him at a, um, at a Mystery Writers of America function, and, um, and I talked to him, and I got the sense, listening to his speech, reading uh, John Douglas's books, they never mention each other. But, but they're both credited with being so there has to be a boys club competition for which of oh. these guys walked in and said, let's study the minds of these guys and go record everything. Well, I think that the general, the general thought, opinion among profilers, because I don't know either way, is that wrestler was the person who came up with the idea really? that he was the person who was pushing for it and invited Douglas to work with him. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I've been getting. That doesn't take away from John Douglas. No, he's brilliant. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're obviously, let me tell you something right now. I'm going to give you, uh, something. I'm going to say something that most people would be shocked to hear, but the FBI is a very competitive place. It really is. I mean, because think about it. They go out and they recruit people that are leaders, people that are go-getters, people that are confident, people that that can walk into a room, not know what's going on, but have the confidence to know, I'm going to figure this out. And so if you have all of those type A people, all of those people who think, you know, that, you know, they got it, they got it going on, of course it has to be competitive yeah when you know when the supervisor has this great case that came you know came out you know he's got this great case everybody on the squad is thinking like he's gonna give it to that guy i deserve that case that should be my case you know or if somebody even a brand new agent and this happens all the time just happens to get something that looks like nothing and it turns out to be one of the biggest cases in the office there are people behind him that snotty nose kid wouldn't know how to tie his shoes without someone telling him that case should be mine it's very competitive yeah 
I have you know what? Uh-huh. It's a good thing. Competition is a good thing. Yes. Yeah, as long as everyone plays fair. And, you know, it wouldn't kill and you in do. someone's book to say, yeah, he brought me in here. I don't remember that seeing that in John Douglas's book. I was helping out my buddy Robert. But listen, I have an embarrassing confession. I sent an email to John Douglas you know, 20, 25 years ago when we first... Me too. I've sent one to him recently, but go ahead. You first. But back when I first read... I was a 20-something film actor, and I wrote... And I, I said... I can't believe I'm going to tell everyone this. I told John Douglas that I would be a great profiler because of my <laughs> acting experience. I was able to psychoanalyze someone from just the black and white print on a paper and create a living, breathing thing in my mind. He never responded, nor should he, he should he have, and probably began to tail me in life. But <laughs> but I did send that email trying to convince him that I should be hired as a profile. How embarrassing! Uh, okay, yeah, you didn't need to study for years and years and years and to do the research wow. and to oh no, you didn't need any of that. You could just do it because. You know, you had good intuition. You know, maybe a few classes, maybe some Saturdays, maybe spend some Saturdays down at the BSU in Quantico and then, you know, send me out there somewhere. Well, I've sent emails to John Douglas, too, because, you know, again, I have a podcast I've been doing for almost five years now. And, you know, I go after agents to interview that have cases that no one's ever heard about. But I also try to get those major agents and major and, and and review major cases and of course i mean somebody to interview who would be on my bucket list of agents to interview would be john douglas yeah. i am still working on plus i also i love the show mindhunter i love the smart things that they did with it so that they don't go down the cliche road themselves about profilers. I think they did a great job with that. I would love to interview John Douglas. And I've interviewed, you know, a number of FBI profilers that know him and work with him. And I keep getting them to just keep asking him because I know he's done other people's podcasts. I mean, come on, buddy. You've done other people's podcasts. Why can't you do mine? That would be great. Yeah, let us know when that happens. I'll, I'll plug it. Um, okay. let, let me get back to another one of my misconceptions. Um, as an author of thrillers, my Google search history has been placed on a list. Now, you know what I mean when I say <laughs> a list. I say that like I know the a list. But, but yes, a everything I've, I've been placed on a list because of what I search for on, on Google. No. No way. No way? Yes. Oh, no way. The FBI has so much more to do. I mean, there's so many cases and things and people to look at. They're, they're not looking at your, your, what you're uh, typing into Google. I can tell you for a fact. Okay. I mean, first of all, the, that's another concept. You just can't start opening an investigation uh, you know, on someone without a predication. And predication is like a key, it's a favorite FBI word. A person has to be predisposed, you know, that you already have to to look at them and see that they uh, have committed similar crimes, have talked about committing, a, you know, a crime, have been involved with people that are committing crimes. There has to be a predication, a reason for you to believe that a person is involved in a crime. And a Google search just doesn't reach that right. level of, uh, of uh, scrutiny. A collective wipe, yeah, you're, wiping you're of safe. the brow from the listeners. Yeah, um, you're safe. 
Uh, here's another one. And I got this one from working on this series that I'm writing now. I was finding in reading transcripts and depositions and all this stuff that the CIA, FBI, and maybe later DEA, the, the stuff I'm reading now is uh, 70s, they don't talk to each other very much. I had stuff that FBI was absolutely not aware of that the CIA was doing with the same person. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, back before 9-11? Yeah, that was true. Right, before 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And one of the, the best books and uh, TV series to watch about that is The Looming Tower. Have you heard of that one? No, I haven't. Mm. Oh, it's it's so excellent. I wish I could. You know, you would think that I would have. a. Oh, I do have a copy. I was going to say you would think I have a copy of my book in front of me. But guess what? I do. <laughs> so let me tell you the name of the of the guy that wrote it because it's so good and it's a true tale of what happened between the FBI and the CIA, uh, why the CIA was aware of these operatives, this being in the United States, operatives that the FBI had, had on their uh, watch list and why they did not share that with the FBI. And, you know, uh, you know of course, the FBI position is if they had known they would have had agents following them and watching them and these of course were the people who ended up uh you know flying the planes and 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 going into the tower the very same people well even if even if the cia didn't share it why wasn't the cia telling them then if they knew they were here because and that was part remember that's one of your uh that's one of the cliches don't forget the, one of the cliches here is that it is the um, a misconception is that uh, the CIA is in charge of investigating, uh, you know, intelligence in the United States, that the CIA hunts spies here in this country. And that is a total misconception. I mean, the reality is I, I, every time I say this, I expect somebody to come in here and drag me out. But the reality is that the CIA are our spies Yes. They're working for us overseas. Overseas, sure. The FBI is the primary agency that is responsible for stopping people overseas, like the, you know, who, the CIA going overseas, the people coming here. It's our responsibility to hunt those spies and stop them from stealing our intellectual property and interfering with our political uh, processes. That's the FBI's job. So the CIA had no jurisdiction and no ability to follow these people and investigate them. Uh, The the CIA has no uh, investigative or prosecutive uh, jurisdiction or or ability. They're not law enforcement. Yeah. In rounding this out, I want to go through some remarkable cases that are in the in the public eye that uh, that we get to see from the outside and get your take on it or your insight or God, if you broke something here, that would be incredible and so appreciated if you pulled a clue out of your desk there and said, you know, I forgot to turn this in. But um, you know, the Wayne Williams Atlanta child murderers has has come back. It's had a bit of uh, traction lately. Firstly, because of a podcast, um, I think it was called Atlanta Monster, if I'm not mistaken, and then now there's an HBO series. Um, the kind of the racial uh, um, 
angle of what was happening in Atlanta at the time politically was interesting to me because I wasn't aware of it. And everything I read in all of the aforementioned agents' books that claim to take ownership of the BSU um, was all about the investigative uh, aspect and the profile of Wayne Williams, about the only thing where his being black was significant was, I forget who the agent was, it might have been Hazelwood who said um, he's got to be black because he could not function in this area and take 30 children without sticking out like a sore thumb. Right. But outside of that, um, do you get annoyed when, because I think they're they're taking some liberties with what the profiling was, how significant the profiling was at the time, and treating it rather flippantly in that it was you know, loaded with mistakes and it was guesswork and there was no evidence. Well, there's no real evidence in a profile. It's compiling a mosaic. Do you get pissed off when you see the second guessing of that hard work? Yeah, of course I do. Because again, this uh, profile is based on research and analysis over many, many years. Uh, a profiler is not just looking at a particular case. They're looking at that case in the light of all the other similar cases that have been investigated over many, many years. And having looked at in this situation, you know, of 20 cases of, of in this type of case, this is who did it, you know. And, and, and when something like this happens in the past, in these 50-some incidents, this is what caused it. So it's all in relationship to years and years and studies and research and analysis. It's not an educated guess. It is a, um, a profile, an indication. And I think a profiler will be the first person to tell you that it is a tool to be used, but they are not necessarily... Uh, saying that this is the person. In the past, when this happens, this has been the case. And it, it, you use that information as a tool to assist in the identification of a person uh, who may be responsible for an otherwise unsolvable mm, case. Right. That's when a profiler comes in. When you have a case that you that a either local our, you know, federal, state law enforcement agency or the FBI has un been unable to solve or they have victims showing up and they're just trying to figure out who did this. When, when all else fails and you have no other idea as to what happened in that case, who could have done it, that's when you call in the profiler to use, you know, her years and years of studies and analysis to help you figure out by looking at what you have in the case and comparing that to what's happened in the past to come up with a profile. Is right. it 100%? No, and they never said it was. But most of the time, it is very, very, very close. Another case uh, in using, uh, this one uses an undercover agent, maybe the most famous one was the Donnie Brasco, uh, Joe Pistone. Uh, operation, which he was undercover for how many years? I think it was close to seven, six Under, or seven. Six years undercover. Uh, oh, yeah. How he, I, I, I interviewed him on my podcast. Yes, too, he so. was a guest on your show, so everyone should <laughs> yes. seek that out as well. Uh, but 
it, that length of time for being anyone who doesn't know who's lived under a rock, he went undercover in the, I believe, the Colombo family in the mob, and was you know dealing with the heavies there, and was allowed into their world. How in six years he avoids detection? Also, never gets himself in uh, tripped up by the well, Joe, you're going to shoot, uh, not Joe, uh, Donnie, you're going to shoot him tonight. For six years, he manages to navigate those waters. It's it's remarkable. Right. Well, at the beginning of his association with the mob, he was uh, acting as a jewelry theft, you know, um, thief, and he was selling with them. And so, uh, you know, as he ingratiated himself with them, and they could see that he was a money maker, because that's all they cared about is who's making money. Yeah. That's when they, you know, that's when they reached out to him more and more and accepted him more and more. And I mean, the people that that embraced him and brought him into the family were people who, you know, saw that, you know, he was a producer, and uh, you know, so they accepted him because they had all of these people around him who were made members of the mob who vouched for for him. And, uh, yeah, so he was lucky. Um, I mean, it, it said, uh, you know, that it, it said that, you know, he was very, very close to being made a, a, uh, a made member. But you got to understand also that, you know, in the, in the world of organized crime, you know, there are people who have their duties and their assignments, and you have some people who are assigned to take care of people, you know, they got the leg breakers and the people that, you know, shoot people in the head, and you have the other people who are just out there supposed to be making money, and he was on the side where, you know, they were expecting him to, you know, produce and pay tribute to, you know, the family and give back money. That's what that was what his role is, which is the case of so many other members of the Bob. They're not all out there, you know, uh, breaking legs. Yeah, but I mean, but it, I mean, it's not, you know, C, uh, IBM or Apple where the, everything's so clearly defined. There is a lot of bleed, right? I know at one point, uh, Agent Pistone ends up having to set up a club right down in Florida with these guys. And there's a lot of nonsense happening in the club. Could have been very easy to be pulled into a conflict one night. That's true. You in know, go with me. Yeah. Ride with me. You know, uh, again. Yeah, that's, you know, he was lucky. He was very, very lucky. Why did it succeed? Was it was it him, just his his believability? Was it, were there many factors at work that we don't see that are able to keep it afloat? What would you attribute it uh, to? It was, it was definitely him. It was definitely him. Uh, and he was, he was a lucky one. I mean, there are other not as successful cases that I'm sure that neither you or or I have, you know, heard about where an agent tried to do that and was unsuccessful because you kind of lose yourself undercover. You can lose yourself undercover. And uh, there may have been people who tried it and, you know, after talking to them and, and evaluating the you know what was happening with them they got pulled and it's like nah uh -uh, buddy this ain't for you you're you know we don't like what you're doing we don't like what you're saying we don't like how you're you know coming back to us and you know we don't want you in this situation but joe was able to do it in a way where he still remembered who he was who he really was did he stay married for that six-year run as a married man i have to ask you this because yes and you know what and this is one thing because everybody's watched the movie and at the end of the movie he slaps his wife 
I actually asked him in the interview, and I didn't know the answer, but I was talking about things that were really negative about his story that were in the movie. And as soon as I brought that up, he said, that did not happen. I never slapped my wife. And I said, well, did you know? And it wasn't in his book, of course, but when they created the movie and the script, it wasn't even in the script. But he just happened to be on, um, what do you call it? On the set? On the set that day. He wasn't there all the time. But uh, he was there on that day. And when he saw that was going to happen, they stopped filming. And he argued and argued and argued and screamed and yelled about that scene being in the movie because it didn't happen. He, you know, he loved his wife. He had never, you know, taken up his hand, you know, to his wife. And he was so upset. But at the end, he lost. You know, he did Mm -hmm. not have, you know, creative control and they put it in the movie. And that's one of the things that he was very, very upset about. There's another scene in that movie, too, where at the end, his character has a duffel bag full of money. And, you know, that was also insulting to him. You know, he never, you know, stole any of the money and, and you know, and ran off with it. But again, these are things that happen when, uh, you know, a movie or a story is being made about the FBI that uh, a writer believes needs to be put into the plot to create excitement and a story and conflict. And, you know, these are what I call creative compromises that unfortunately, you know, when people see them over and over again, they believe them. See, that's the, I, I don't agree that 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 it's the same because that, you see, that's a that's a crime having Pistone keep money. Right. Like. Right. That's not just a character flaw. Like, OK, we put in here that you cheated on your wife or something. That's a crime. That's a crime. And I think, you know, in the back of the book, I talk about that one of the very last chapters or it's an afterward. I kind of talk about, you know, why I wrote, you know, wrote the book and these creative compromises and how I understand them as a writer myself. As a crime writer, there are things in my book that really wouldn't happen that way in the FBI. But because of the way I want the story to run, I had to change maybe how a trial ran or or something that happened this you is know? in your fiction in your fiction work you're talking in, about in my yeah. fiction i mean my goodness my <laughs> my female fbi agent i think most fbi agents who read my book are not happy because she is so flawed and she's got some she's really messed up in some ways and some of the things that she does and you know it's it, but I wanted to create this character because I thought it was fun and sexy. I mean, my first book is about the FBI investigating uh, corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. And the strip club case actually happened in Philly. When I saw the case, I looked at it and said, oh, my God, this is a story. It needs to be a book. It wasn't my case, but I went to the two female agents, very attractive female agents who were the lead case agents. And I said, you know, would you ever write a book about this? They said, no. And then I sat down with them and and I wrote the book, you know, I I sat down and got some ideas for them and I forgot where I was going with this, but um. I was, I was, we were talking about, uh, about it being a crime, them using license to make him take the money. Right. And so one of the things that I wrote in, in the myths and misconception book was that a lot of agents don't understand that when they sign their, their life story away 
uh, you know, when they, they sign the contract to have their life story made into a book or to a movie or, or a TV show, uh, there's always that line in there that, you know, that that says that, you know, they don't have any creative control. And, you know, the story uh, many, many times is altered uh, because the most important thing for a writer, and you know this, is the story. That's the most important thing. It's not necessarily in fiction, truth. It's the story. And there have been many, many agents who have had books and stuff made about, uh, you know, their life story that, you know, uh, even though it says at the very beginning, based on a true story are, you know, inspired by a true story, the public doesn't understand that a lot of the stuff in there is made up. Yeah. You know? I think as long as you keep the spirit of what's going on okay, uh, then you you can't really complain if, if you know how Hollywood works. But, but you know, commission of a crime, that's a real hazy area yeah. there. And I think Pistone had a right to be annoyed. Um, yeah. What case are you asked about the most when people come up, learn what you do, you're at the, you know, family function? What do people want to talk to you about? Hmm. Ah, boy, that's a good one. Uh, God. John Bonet, like one of the ones in the news, yeah, right? You know, yeah, yeah, people people ask about uh, John Bonet. They ask about Wayne uh, Williams. You know, they ask about, of course, Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we just had the 25th anniversary of that. Uh, of course, 9-11, uh, Joe Pistone. There's so many great uh, ca- cases uh, that the FBI has involved has been involved in and has been able to resolve successfully. Uh, there's just so many um, interesting stories that that people know. There's so much about, and one of the other reasons I wrote the book is because as I started doing my interviews and talking to agents, there I just realized, my goodness, there's so many stories about the FBI. In the media, in the entertainment media. I mean, even now, I just told you about Bosch. Their central plot of this season is, uh, of course, about the FBI. But Ozark, have you ever watched Ozark? I I started it. I didn't get very far. Well, oh, I like that show. I just finished binging it. I just watched it. The ending of season two is unbelievable i mean it's one of those endings where you 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 know you can't believe it happened but that you know central story of that is the fbi there's a really interesting not very flushed out uh black female character in 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 this season but every time you turn around the fbi is involved in uh you know a, a tv show or a movie so i mean it's just nice to have an opportunity i'm not mad at anybody (laughs) <laughs> you know, that that writes any of these cliches and misconceptions, you know, in, in their stories. I understand why they do it and how it happened. They just get a I shoe. Just, they just get a shoe. Right. The they they get a shoe. And a lot of times the shoe is because of the misconceptions in the plot, not the story itself. I may actually like the movie, but I got to throw a shoe at it because of it was riddled with misconceptions. But uh, it, it's just that the FBI is, uh, you know, it's it's good for for entertainment. People love to yeah. to read and watch about the FBI. And I just thought if I could give people the opportunity to really know who the FBI is and what the FBI does, just so that they have that reality check, then they can go ahead and watch their movie, go ahead and watch their TV show, read right. their book. That's fine. 
since you brought them up, I have to get your take here. Uh, John Bonet had to be Patsy, right? I don't know. I mean, they had that really controversial TV show where they said it was the little brother. Mm. I, I will tell you, though, that uh, I spoke to wrestler, but it was one of the things he spoke about on the dais back when I saw him speak and afterwards. And his profile was Patsy. Uh, well, I can tell you this. I do agree. It was somebody in the family. Right. It was definitely somebody in the family who was there that day. There was nobody from the outside. Oh, my God. Came. That ridiculous ransom note. That's If you okay. saw that in a movie, you would throw the shoe. And that yes, was real yes, life. Exactly. Um, and uh, so uh, let's just wrap this up here. It, the other thing people must come to you about now with Comey is like the deep state accusations from the person who lives in the White House now. Um, it, that must uh, drive you up the wall, too, right? It absolutely drives me up the wall. But one of the things that I've done. And I have very strong political opinions, <laughs> very strong. I do not like people accusing the FBI of, uh, of, of being, you know, criminals. Um, so I have very strong opinions. But I will tell you this, and I want anybody listening, I don't care what side of the political, uh, you know, road or whatever you want to call it, fence that you're in, I make it a point to be nonpartisan, and apolitical in my podcast because I want as many people to come in as possible who have an idea of what they think the FBI is to be able to come in and just hear the facts. I let the story speak for me. But I will say this, that I am one of the agents who's not happy with Comey not because of any action that I think he did when he was director, but because of his actions afterwards. I mean, I really believe that he now is being political. And for people who accused him of being political and, you know, when he was uh, the director, and he and he denies it. And I believe that it's very difficult to have a conspiracy in the FBI. It's almost it's it's impossible at the FBI investigates a case. You have a whole Justice Department that prosecutes and, and approves actions that we make. It would be very difficult to have a conspiracy. But I know people will disagree with that. But I was in the FBI. I know. Um, but when you deny that and you can show that and prove it and and inspections and actions have been done that indicate that that was so then you can't come out and become political i wish he would just go away you know how presidents are kind enough to when they come out of office to step back yes time for comey to step back (laughs) it's time for comey to step back because i think at this point he is doing um, more harm. And I have to say this because of the last five years of my FBI career, I was the, what they call media rep, but I was the spokesperson. I was the one who talked to reporters and to TV people. You know, my name is the one that was in the paper when it came to asking about an arrest or an investigation, you know, where, where we, of course, could speak. Um, I did that job. You know, I was there with the U.S. attorney, you know, working with their offices, talking about, you know, how we wanted to present, you know, different uh, things about the FBI. I know our rules and regulations. And as a director, in many instances, 
you know, he <laughs> he went in the opposite direction. And, and, and so, you know, even though some of the things that are being said about the FBI are just to me, ridiculous and totally untrue. Some of the things that are being said about Comey, his post-director activities, I have to say, you know, not a fan. Not, yeah, not yeah, a he's fan. not. He's not helping the FBI out in any way at all. Jerry, where can we find you? Where can we read you? Tell us about your tell us about your fiction. I'm gonna let you get the fiction book out there. And listen, if you want to collaborate, if you need an agent who is like possessed by the spirit of her first arrest or something, we'll we'll do a book together. <laughs> okay, so of course I have my website, which is jerrywilliams.com, and that's Jerry with a J-E-R-R-I Williams.com. And I am the author of four books at this time. I have two crime novels with my main character, Special Agent Carrie Wheeler, who is extremely flawed and has some issues, but who is uh, an excellent agent and a crime fighter and is trying to uh, do her job while also protecting her family. Coincidentally, she has three kids <laughs> and a, a husband who loves basketball. Just a coincidence. It's nothing. It's my husband makes me tell people because uh, my character Carrie has infidelity issues, which other agents don't like. But my husband makes me tell everyone, Carrie Wheeler, the character, is not me. Okay. All right, we it got that. Not, <laughs> not me. All right, so I have those. The uh, two books so far are uh, Pay to Play. And Greedy Givers. Greedy Givers was actually inspired by a case I wrote. And I'm getting ready to come out soon with the third book and the, the trilogy, Spoiled Sport. Then, of course, I have FBI Myths and Misconceptions, which is my book about the 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV and movies. And I just came out with a really fun book, which is FBI Word Search Puzzles, which is fun for armchair detectives. The other book is called uh, Manual for Armchair Detectives. This one's fun. And it's just word search. It's word search on an advanced level with high concept FBI themes. And um, if you like word search, especially in these days when you need something to occupy your, uh, that's the, the latest book that's out. And Very good. And, and we can I'm, get you at Jerry Williams one on Twitter, I think, right? Yeah, I'm at Jerry Williams one on Twitter, Jerry Williams one on Instagram, Jerry Williams author on Facebook. And I'm very active on LinkedIn, too. And of course, there's the podcast, which I just passed my 200th episode. Wow. And I have talked to FBI agents again from some of the biggest cases, Watergate. I, I try to go for the older agents because uh, I want to m- memorialize their their story. Uh, Oklahoma City bombing, you know, kidnapping, organized crime. I do it all. So that's available, of course, wherever you get your podcast. All right, reach out to her. Let her know how she did here today. Listen, Jerry, before we go, if if anyone has footage of a president with Russian prostitutes, which agency would probably have that? That would probably be the FBI. That would be but the at, FBI. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, I mean, we got to be, we got to be realistic. At this point, that video obviously does not uh, exist, because um, I think with all of the um, 
you know, nastiness and, and, and volatility that that's out there. Somebody would have leaked that by now. Right. So this is just another vicious rumor, another misconception. Yeah. Or someone got rid don't, of it or it existed don't. and someone got rid of it. Well, that's a possibility. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, again, I'm not a big conspiracy theory. I want the facts. And, you know, I'm waiting for the I was waiting for the video. Uh, I can't, I'm not going to divulge whether or not I wanted that video. Yes, I did to exist or not, but I haven't seen it. And I am a realist. Yeah. I'm a realist, you know? So at this point, you know, I have to agree with, uh, you know, half of the country that that was not true. Oswald. Cause I have, cause I haven't seen it yet. Oswald alone. Oh God. Uh, it's a whole that other, that's one. a whole other episode, isn't it? Yeah, that's a whole other episode. Yeah. It's part My of goodness. It's part of what I've been writing and, and researching right. with the whole but, Cuba but thing. Again, but again, it goes back to my conspiracy theory. Conspiracies always come out, especially large, huge conspiracies, you know, like the assassination of a president, because too many people would know. Jerry Williams, that stuff is fascinating. I just, oh, I could do that all day long. She has to be on about 10 more times before I get my fill of Agent Williams. All right, going along today. Twitter, let's get you on the Twitter here. Told you, I told you I'd answer what you have, damn it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Instagram, a wrestling historian, what was the lamest reason you were given for an interview cancellation? Um... Well, there haven't been many, so I have a very small pool to pick from. I was told I was crazy when I booked Sid Vicious uh, for an interview, and it was a weird it was a weird environment. So, so we do the book. It always works this way. I usually get offered somebody, or I pursue somebody, and you know it looks like it's going to happen. So I'm talking to the the in between, whether it's an agent or a promoter. Uh, whatever. So I'm talking to the in-between and getting the details. And then I'll, I'll call Anthony and, and we talk about, well, do we have anything for this person? Blah, blah. So we agree. We'll do it. Okay. We make the offer. It's back and forth or it's accepted. Either way, after we discuss it, me and Anthony, then it gets booked. And then a schedule begins to emerge some weeks before the show. I might get materials to the talent first. I might talk to the talent first. If it's Eric Sims, there's no communication at all. But then I'll tell the crew. So then it's, you know, Sid Vicious interview, 6 o'clock at the courtyard by Marriott, Newark. Um, You know, Brian will load up the truck and uh, with, uh, maybe Craig and meet us there and get set up and do the thing. So all throughout in my discussion with Anthony, my discussion with Brian and Craig, and it, there was always like a, well, Sid's supposed to be Friday. So I think we're working, you know, well, we never accepted the booking as <laughs> we were very confident in the booking, let's just say. And then sure enough, it was, it was a Friday morning. He was to be flying out that Friday morning and the promoter, who was uh, bringing him out, um, 
Actually, it was another producer contacted me and said, hey, do you hear anything about Sid? I'm like, no, that's never good. And he's like, yeah, I think he's not coming. So then I get in touch with the promoter who was bringing him out. And sure enough, Sid lost his wallet at the airport. Hate when that happens. I uh, can't say anyone was, uh, was without a backup plan for their Friday night. Oh, John at the Tiki Garden on Twitter says, Florida guy to Florida guy, Daytona or New Smyrna? I vote NSB all day long, New Smyrna Beach. Well, not a Florida guy. I mean, we have a a vacation spot here, but um, I mean, this isn't my house all the time. So although it's certainly starting to feel like it, what are we, seven weeks, six weeks? Um I have been told to go to New Smyrna Beach. I have not gone down to New Smyrna. I am. To, I was listen. The first time I went to, let me just tell you this. All right. First time I went to Daytona. I got this thing in. I'm hearing Daytona Beach, right? It's it's a, a vacation spot. So I have built this whole thing up in my head of what Daytona Beach is. I'm driving down this fucking thing on the A1A. The goddamn place. I mean, Seaside Heights, New Jersey, puts this place to shame. That it, it, it's like derelicts out on the street. It's it's the filthiest white trash trailer community in the world. The area that I'm driving down in Daytona. So I'm like, holy shit, this has to end. So I started all the way up at the top, right, right by Ormond Beach, and I'm going down, 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 and it's not getting any better. I'd made dinner reservations at the Hard Rock. In, because let's see, you figure, hey, the hard rock. I, I seen the hard rock in Orlando. It's palatial. These hard rocks. I get to this hard rock in Daytona. I'm like, holy shit! Where am I? So yeah, no, it was not good. It was not a good experience. So I, I, I start texting Nash. He's from. He's local here, and so I'm like, dude, I, I where can I go for something decent here? They, it's they, they killing me. So he sends me to the Hyde Park, a steakhouse in, uh, I think it was the Hilton in Daytona, which was a great recommendation. Wonderful steakhouse. Go there if you can. Um, but thank God for him. Or I, would, I think I would have ended up having hot dogs out on the street with, with some skin popper. So, but I did drive this most recent time down here when I was pandemicing i drove a1a straight i went all the way down and then i stayed i didn't take when i got to the southern part of daytona i think it's called daytona beach shores uh i kept on whatever road that becomes ocean or water or something like that uh and i stayed on that to go through those small communities yeah places like ponce's inlet beautiful wonderful it ch- there's just a change that happens when you get to the very south part of Daytona, and it redeems itself a little bit. But it's not Daytona proper. It's it's Daytona Beach Shores, and that's where things become a little less crunchy. Um, everybody had I, I, close to a full set of teeth from what I could see. And then once I got all the way down like into Ponce Inlet, that's like zillion-dollar houses and, and beachfront property. Gorgeous. So, but uh, uh, to answer your question, I, I do have to get to New Smyrna Beach. Uh, when I, the whole reason I told this is because when I was at the steakhouse that Nash recommended, 
I I was I said to the waitress, I said, listen, I had a very different impression of Daytona Beach. Where the hell can I go where I'm not I'm checking my wallet every five minutes? And she said, yeah, yeah you're going to go north, Ormond Beach. You're going to go south, New Smyrna Beach. And uh, and that's pretty much it. So I have to uh, I have to hit that. Uh, I have to get down there. I promise I will. And then uh, John, I will uh, let you know how that goes. Uh, let's see. I had more here. Something just came across from... Gianluca Portolamiol. Um, when is Yushu coming back? When Kayfabe Commentaries comes back. I mean, certainly it's here. And it's hard to talk about Kayfabe Commentaries in, in the past tense because it's like, you know, we're just not making music right now, right? You still listen to everything the Rolling Stones have put out. It doesn't make them any less relevant. They shook things up and changed things and turned everything on their head just like we did. We've got a lot of good music out there, metaphorically speaking. I always try to do the rock star thing because it makes me feel a little cooler. In truth, it's probably closer to uh, another metaphor would be better, like comic books or something that Anthony always used to say. But, you know, in my head, I'm going to say, hey, listen, man, until we take the stage again, there's plenty of good music out there. Um, and that's when it'll happen. I'm not going to do it without... Uh, under the uh, not under the Casey banner, we need the band back together. There was a magic; it can't be denied. Uh, you take any piece of that out. Uh, what I brought to the table, the front man thing, and uh, the chemistry, and all these things that you guys talk about. I'm not accusing myself of it. And then the uh, the construction of the piece, uh, Anthony's writing and Anthony's ideas and his sense of humor which was so perfectly aligned uh to mine and our sensibilities uh listen they, they, you know there were times when uh you know we'd fight over an idea but ultimately uh when we found that middle ground it was great because uh because that's that's where the magic was it got sanded down in that process What does your family know? Uh, this is from Found Objects, by the way. What does your family know and or think of segments like What's in the Bag? Uh, how can you explain it to your kids if they ran across the clip on YouTube? Um, my God, is, 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 is that the most objectionable material on YouTube that you think my kids are going to come across? The shit that pops up on their TikTok and YouTube? It's fairly innocuous. Um, and I think my kids know what entertainment is. They have grown up and are growing up um, on the stage, around the stage, and um, it's really just normal that you know their parents are in the arts. And right, I just called this the arts. Yeah, maybe more than movies and TV shows I did, but they know I have this stuff. They know there's a podcast, and you know Lana got a kick out of listening to herself on air. Um, um, but it, it's nor it, it, everybody's got their level of normal. You know, my normal as a kid was, you know, my dad drinking and, you know, breaking things. So that was home. I get a warm feeling just talking about it. Listen, let me know what your home was like. Okay. Hit me back on Twitter, um, at kfabe, uh, at kfabe Sean for me, um, at kfab for the podcast and please don't forget that there is uh there is a patreon 
out there, for God's sakes. And you can become a patron on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Podcast. Listen, Anthony Mohammed is, is the latest to get on board, okay? So, uh, uh, hello, Anthony. Mohammed, thank you for helping to produce this program. You join many, many others uh, that help keep it free and democratic and partially yours. Listen, we'll check you guys out next week, okay? Ciao. Do something important, for fuck's sake.